like to welcome you all to this session, which is on gambling and gaming. What's the difference? What's the, the harm? Um, my name's Tim Miller. I'm executive director of the Gambling Commission, and we are the, the strategy regulator for gambling in Great Britain. Um, I'll quickly introduce you to each of our speakers. Um, we've got Alex Coleman, who is from GamblerWare and is also uh, an avid gamer, I believe. Um, we've got Heather Wardle from the London School of um, Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. Uh, I think we've got them all on here, actually. We've got Liz Ritchie from Gambling With Lives. Um, we've got Annika Lindbergh from Headwood UK. And we've got David Zendel from York St. John University. Um, I will hand over to them shortly to give a very quick introduction on, on their own thoughts on this subject. But very quickly, for, for many of you that may not be familiar with either some of the concepts of, of, of gambling or, or gaming, just to give you some of the kind of the headlines to set the scene, if we can. So some key facts and figures, particularly around children's gambling. And one of the things that's really important to kind of point out, when we talk about children's gambling, and as the Gambling Commission, we do a lot of research on this, there's a whole range of different activities that we actually see. Some of those will be um, underage gambling, so that might be gambling online, gambling um, on slot machines. Um, some of those are forms of gambling that children are allowed to play, so that might be like the crane machines you see at the seaside. Um, some of those are forms of gambling that are not regulated forms of gambling, but might be gambling between friends in, in the playground, um, uh, playing cards with, 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 with each other, things like that. There's a whole variety of different activities. But what we do know um, from our research is that 14% of 11 to 16-year-olds have gambled in the past week. And what's really striking about that figure is that that's actually more young people than have smoked or drunk alcohol. And it means that actually gambling is a more popular activity than many of these other activities that we typically believe um, children to, to become involved with. And actually, for, for those of you particularly that are parents in the room, you may find that quite surprising. We're often encouraged to talk to our children about the, the risk of smoking, of drugs, of alcohol. When was the last time anyone actually said to any of us as parents, have you had a conversation with your children about the risks that can come from gambling? Um, so... Some other key figures as, as well, uh, which, which show that gambling is not a risk-free activity. We know from our research that 55,000 11 to 16-year-olds have problems with, with gambling. And that can come from a variety of different sources, as we've said al already. But how children are introduced to that can come from a, a range of different ways. We know, for example, that 12% of young people follow gambling companies on social media. Um, we know that 7% of, of young people have said that adverts have prompted them to gamble when they otherwise weren't going to, to do so. So we know that there's a range of different ways that children can be introduced to these behaviours, and we know that some of these behaviours are harmful. But in addition to things that are recognised in law as gambling, we are increasingly seeing a blurring of the lines between what is considered to be gambling and what is considered to be part of, kind of gaming and, and, and computer games. And just to introduce kind of some of the key concepts there, so that when the panel are talking about them, if you're not familiar, you'll, you'll know what we're talking about. Loot boxes, something that some of you may have heard about, and we, we've got people on the panel that have done research on loot boxes. They're virtual crates or, or chests within computer games that contain virtual items or, or rewards. Um, players can win them or they can pay money to actually open them in the hope of gaming, gaining something of value. And we know that 31% of 11 to 16-year-olds have paid to open a loot box. Another thing we may be talking about are, are skins, which are virtual items within um, video games that have different values and can contribute to the, to the game itself. They might be different weapons, they might be different costumes within the, the game. But what we know is that they can also be used for gambling. And actually, as a gambling regulator, just a couple of years ago, we brought the first prosecution ever in the world for people that were actually allowing children to gamble with these in-game items and, and successfully prosecuted them. And finally, social casinos. These are um, games which look and feel like online gambling casino games, 
but uh, are usually not played for, for real money. That might be vir it's often virtual coins, but no real money can actually be won. Um, we know that 9% of children um, have played these games, and we also know that children that have played those games are more likely to go on and gamble for, for real. So there's some of the key concepts that, that we wanted to introduce before I hand over to, to, the, to the panel. Um, so I'll ask each of my colleagues just to really no more than one minute, and I will try and hold you to that, just to give us kind of your initial thoughts to get this discussion going. I'll then have some questions that I'll, I'll ask them, and then I want to make sure I hand over to, to you to ask any questions or any mm -hmm. comments that, that you've got. So if we maybe go down the kind of the row in, in, in order, that's probably the easiest way. So um, David, first of all. Okay, uh, hello, I'm Dr. David Zandel. Um, I conducted a large amount of research on the effects of loot boxes, and I regularly sort of give testimony to governments and things about it. Loot boxes are extremely prevalent in uh, video games. Uh, we conducted an analysis of like the top grossing games on Google Play Store, you know, the one you find on your phone, and 54% of them had loot boxes in them. They're everywhere. And what's more, 94% of those games with loot boxes in were deemed suitable for children age 12 and above. They're everywhere, they're deemed suitable for children, and what's more, they don't have a content descriptor associated with them. So if you, as a parent, are buying a game or letting your child play a game, you don't know it's got loot boxes in it. Yet, they are associated with problem gambling. And we see this link again and again and again. We're not quite sure what that link means, and I'll talk about that later, but it's there. Um, we need to take loot boxes seriously. Right, my name is Annika, and I'm a counselling psychologist who worked a very long time with problem gamblers particularly, but as of last couple of years, also seen a lot of video gamers who've developed addiction to that. I think my stance is quite simple, actually, even as a layman. It's, you know, we know kind of that there is a similar set of vulnerabilities, some, some of which overlap between gamers and gamblers that have developed problems. And to me, it just seems like taking a huge risk on a young, vulnerable population to introduce something that we know has addictive properties, such as loot boxes. So, yeah, that's my stance. So, <clears throat> my name is Alexander, and I um, work for Gamble Aware now, the, uh, the charity who deals with gambling addiction and harm minimization. Uh, but I'm here more in a personal capacity as a gamer, and I used to be semi-professional. I say semi because I never got paid. Um, <laughs> but um, I was top five in Europe and that sort of thing. So I, I have been in the scene a lot. And I think, from my perspective, the one thing that I find is that they're everywhere. They really are. Uh, we talk about them as if they're the same thing. They all have very different characteristics. They all act and feel and, and uh, portray themselves in very different ways. And I think some of them we know are harmful from the people who are actually telling us that they're harmful. We might not have research to say so yet, but these are the experts by experience. Others, actually, we don't know. We, there's just not enough evidence. And uh, as a consumer, actually, some of them are pretty nice. They're free. You can't trade them. They add some flashy things to the game. They uh, give the game's longevity and that sort of thing. And potentially, those are fine. We just don't know. But what we do know is that there are some correlations between gambling addictions and boxes. And they are everywhere, and they're available to children. Hi, I'm Heather Wardle. I work at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, um, which normally raises a few eyebrows when I, uh, when I tell people that. Um, I'm a sociologist, so I'm really interested in the kind of the power processes and the, the meanings that are attached to these things. And the way I think about this is that, first of all, we know that gaming and gambling has always been intertwined. I think often we approach this as, this as if this is some kind of new phenomena that we have never seen before. And we know that children have, for a very long time, been engaged with gambling. For me, the fundamental difference is, is we now have the insertion of really huge corporations who are driven by quite different motivations, um, often really driven by their, their profit motivations, who are then trying to use these different kind of gaming mechanics, uh, gambling-like mechanics within games, to try and get more money. And we need to think about, well, is that okay? We also know that there is a reciprocal feedback loop between gaming companies and gambling companies, that they're all borrowing ideas from each other and buying into each other. So for me, the real focus is, is putting the attention on the corporations that, um, that underpin this and really thinking about, well, what are the processes that we should be worried about here? Actually, for me, it's about extraction and potentially exploitation of our young people. Hello, uh, I'm Liz Ritchie from the charity Gambling With Lives. 
I'm the expert by experience on this panel. Um, my son, Jack, uh, killed himself in 2017 uh, because of gambling addiction. And uh, our reaction to that was to reach out to other families. And we uh, made contact with a lot of other families in similar situations, and we formed the charity Gambling With Lives. And one <coughs> characteristic is that all of the boys who died from the Gambling With Lives families were children when they became addicted. Uh, they were all addicted doing ordinary things like waiting for the bus or playing on their phones. Um, so the view of the bereaved families is that uh, the companies are grooming the next generation of income generators. And our view, I mean, for me personally, I've worked as a therapist for many years and I've done a lot of work with people who've been sexually abused. My view is that there is a not dissimilar process of grooming going on. And it's about exploitation. Thank you, panel. Um, a few questions I'll ask to get the discussion going, but just want to say for, for, for many of you before today, you may have wondered why there was a session in relation to kind of gambling at, at this conference. What's the relevant to kind of your, your everyday lives, your, your professional lives? And um, hopefully during the course of the conversation, we'll draw some of that that out that um, you may not come into contact with with gambling itself very often but many of you will come into contact with young people with children have routes to deliver messages to them you may come into contact with social media with with computer games industry as well so there are real opportunities I think for all of us here to play a part in addressing some of the issues that we'll be exploring and and hopefully that there's an opportunity for the discussion at the end for all of us to, to draw some of that out um, if I can maybe um, kick off first of, you, first of all with you, David, um, the, the issues about the kind of the overlap between gaming and gambling are growing in prominence. Indeed, at the moment, Parliament is, is looking at this in, in one of their select committees and in giving evidence to, to the select committee, um, I think just in the last few days, the vice president of EA Games on the big um, games developers describe loot boxes as being like kinder eggs, something which you know parents will be very familiar with. Um, interested on your, your views on, on that comparison. Uh, yeah. So I'm deeply interested in this, um, especially seeing as uh, EA made that statement when one of the MPs on the select committee said, David's come down here and said loot boxes aren't terrific. What do you think about that? And, and they sort of said, oh, they're just like kinder eggs. So this this line or this piece of rhetoric that we should not be concerned about loot boxes because they share formal similarities with familiar things from our own childhood, which we know aren't that harmful, is kind of the way the industry is tackling loot boxes. It's saying, look, you don't have to be worried about them. You open up a loot box, you get a nice surprise inside it. It's just the same as a Kinder Egg. Uh, so it's an appeal to similarities. Uh, but what it whitewashes is differences. So yes, there are similarities between these randomized rewards that you get in games and loot boxes, but there are also differences the amount of money people spend. It is commonplace to hear stories of people spending tens of thousands of dollars on loot boxes. That kind of money is not commonly spent on Kinder Eggs. Um, <laughs> the value of the things in the loot boxes? I mean, if you're opening a, uh, a, a weapons case in Counter-Strike, you might be hoping to get something that is that you can transform into real-world value uh, ranging in the thousands of dollars. There are no $1,000 toys in Kinder Eggs. The culture is different around loot boxes. We asked a bunch of adolescents, you know, why are you buying these things? Uh, and one of the top reasons that they gave was like, I am buying these to fit in. You know, my friends all have these expensive skins in the game. And remember that, like, games have kind of become social worlds for many children. My friends have all got these skins. I like to fit in. I kind of need that skin as well. So there are so many differences um, as well as similarities. But most importantly... Loot box spending is linked to problem gambling. And every time you go and look for that link, it's there. We don't know why the link exists. And there are two explanations for it. One of which is that like loot box are linked to problem gambling. The more money you spend on loot boxes, the more severe your problem gambling is because loot boxes literally cause the development of problem gambling because they're so similar to gambling. Or it might be the case that they appeal more to people who have gambling problems. You know, you are spending loads and loads of money on, say, slot machines or something, and then you go home and you see something that looks like a slot machine, and that disordered spending transfers to that too. So we don't know why they're linked, but they are linked, and like Kinder Eggs aren't. So, so that I, I'm just, I had loads of sympathy with the line a couple of years ago, back when there was no research. There's research now. They should give it up. It doesn't look good for them. Thank you. Um, Liz, do you yeah, want to yeah, I'd, I'd just like to stop calling it problem gambling. This is a proper addiction. 
it was classified as an addiction in the American Psychiatric Manual in 2013. It's equivalent to drugs and alcohol. I think we're talking about the equivalent of Class A drugs here. And there is no shame in being addicted to something that is addictive. And it will happen. If you create something that is addictive, people will get addicted. And young people are particularly vulnerable. On, on that addiction point, um, Alexander, you know, there'd be a number of people in, in the room, and I, certainly when I first joined the commission, I was in the same position who hadn't perhaps even heard of loot boxes prior to today and might be thinking, well, what's the, the, the appeal? We, you know, why is this something that we should be interested in? As someone who's a, a gamer, could you try and explain actually why you know, loot boxes, some of these other things that we've spoken about are, are, are appealing? See, this is the issue when you're talking about it. It's, it's so multifaceted. The, the loot boxes, as I mentioned before, they take so many different shapes. So in some games, you would actually gain power. You would become more powerful by buying more loot boxes, and you had a, a randomized chance of getting uh, either a powerful weapon or a player for FIFA, whatever. And you're talking to a very, very competitive group of people who the only, thing, the only reason that they're playing the games are to win. So if you tell them that you can get more power behind an element of a chance, they're going to spend more money. In others, it's the, the cultural aspect. You know, I, um, I opened the loot box uh, a few weeks ago. I got a pair of wings. They don't do anything. You can't fly with them, you know. But if I was to buy them outright, they're like 200 quid, and I spent a pound. I got, I got happy, right? I was thrilled. My friends enjoyed that. They're like, oh, that's so cool. I want that as well. Like, you know, that sort of social aspect of it. And I think that's the, that's the hard thing to understand, that a lot of times you don't actually want it for the, the monetary value, you want it for the social value. Because uh, there's a few games where you can cash out, there's some that you can't, actually the majority you can't. But um, to, to talk about one of my friends, he spent I think roughly 2,000 pounds on loot boxes in, in CSGO. And keeping in mind, I think at the time there were a pound, a pound 50 to open each, so you can, you can do the math. He got one dagger skin, so it doesn't actually change the weapon, it does the same amount of damage and everything. But that was worth about 800 pounds. So he was happy. And I asked him, so, so did you actually get what you wanted? Were you happy with the money you spent? And he's like, hell yeah. Now that people are inspecting me or they're seeing me play, they think I'm good because I got this thing. You know? So it's, it's, a very, uh, it's, a, it's a subset of a culture within it that actually adds to you wanting these items. And uh, it's, um, yeah, Heather. I mean, just to add to that, so often when we're talking about loot boxes, we come down to quite legalistic definitions. You know, do these things meet the legal definition of what is or is not gambling? And often that relies on it having a monetary value of actual physical money. And because they're digital items, there is a bit of debate around that. For me, I think we need to take a step back and actually, exactly as Alex Alexander has just said, you know, we need to look at how the players themselves are valuing these things and the values that they attach to them. And I recently did a whole load of um, focus groups with a bunch of 14 and 15-year-old boys who, first of all, I mean, they talked in a language that I didn't understand, so that, <laughs> that was complicated enough. But as, as we kind of unpicked it... They were like, you know what, you know, no, these, these things have real value to us. They have social value, social status, the, all of the things you've just described. But actually, they said, some of them said that they felt like they had more value because they don't actually really have access to money. So they can't gamble with money. <laughs> and, when, and when I said to them, well, yeah, if you could gamble on, online, they said, yeah, if we could get away with it, we would, but we don't. So we do the loot boxes. And because of that, because of that kind of context, they actually, not, nearly all universally felt that this was definitely was a gambling activity. Mm. And it didn't matter to them that these the, the things that they were winning were a virtual thing rather than a real thing. Yeah. Um, just want to bring well, Annika in on Yeah, on no, this. I just... One of the things from a clinical standpoint that I find a little bit disturbing is that even any person during a state of heightened emotion is going to have a sort of... We're going to have a harder time resisting impulses, OK? So when you're looking at the people who develop problems with gambling or gaming etc they often are, have like even at that point elevated impulsivity this is one of the most common vulnerabilities not not the full story but it's one of them so you take a person like that put them on a game they're going to be highly stimulated by this game already and at that time you're then selling them something that they don't even know what they're paying for as soon you're exposing them to what's called an intermittent reinforcement schedule which is addictive I just feel like that mixture is really, really dangerous, basically, because you, you got then a vulnerable population who are exposed to something very addictive, 
during a state of heightened emotion. So of course they're going to be very likely to to go overboard, right? And to me, that is just the beginning of what could later become a real issue. So, so we've spoken a bit about some of the the features of different products that that look problematic. I'd be really interested if if um, particularly perhaps starting with with you, Liz, um, if you could share with the audience kind of the the other end then actually what do the people themselves experience that are struggling with this mm -hmm. you know what if you're happy to talk mm -hmm. a bit about your your own experiences yeah. here uh, to, to to actually help all of us understand you know if 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 a loved one of ours was struggling mm -hmm. what might we see or indeed actually what might we not see that's a big question um i think um one characteristic that is particularly problematic is that this is a, uh, a chronic, life-threatening illness, psych psychiatric illness, with intermittent, severe episodes. So because it's so intermittent, and this is something that people don't understand, um, and so hidden, and so unknown, um, it's actually very difficult to, to know what to do. Um, we think we could have saved Jack's life if we had known that this is a severe psychiatric disorder and that it's very highly correlated with suicide. It's correlated with suicide, suicidal ideation, with attempts and with completed suicides. And that has been known for a long time and across the world. There is research to show that. But what happened after Jack died was that we hit the research. My husband, Charles, is here. Um, he used to be a government researcher. Um, and we were the ones who correlated that research. And my question to everybody really is, why does it always take a group of bereaved families to do this kind of thing? when we're the ones who are struggling with a bereavement. And we are forever now in a fight. We are the ones who are saying the most difficult things for people to hear. And we were the first ones to talk about suicide. We were the ones who are responsible for that 250 to 650 uh, per year that you hear now that's been quoted multiple times in Parliament. Uh, the 15 times... Uh, more likely to die by suicide, which is the recent Swedish research. We're the ones who've brought that to public attention. And that's pretty shameful, really. Um, so I would say, uh, your question, <laughs> what was your question, Tim? Um, so really to kind of give people a sense as to, you know, if they've got a loved one who's, str who's struggling yeah, with this, yeah. what, um, what might they see or, or actually might, what might they expect to see? That well, it actually will be they intermittent. Yeah. Uh, I think that's the point. But also what seems to be the case now looking back is that there's a sort of 48-hour window, and this is from talking to gamblers, where and the suicidal feelings seem to come immediately after crashing out of a session. And gamblers talk about being in the zone. And um, people who've emailed our website... One young man, for example, talked about, said, I don't know what happened to me. I spent 12 hours. I was weeing into a milk bottle. I've lost all my savings. I've lost £10,000. People don't understand what has happened to them. Jack didn't understand. That's why we must tell children. We, he had a right to know that when he walked into the bookies when he was 17 with a group of his friends gambling in his dinner hour with his dinner money that his life was in, under threat. We are g campaigning for health warnings on machines and on online games that's similar to smoking. A six-year-old could tell you that smoking kills. Who in this audience? I mean, I think it's quite interesting. There's actually relatively few people here, considering the comp. Who has thought about this? Yeah. Um, just want to bring Heather in on on that because one of the things that kind of I learned from particularly talking to to, to Liz and, and and Charles about their experiences is that for Jack it wasn't always about large sums of of, yeah. of, of money, yeah. and and I know you've done quite a bit of work looking at the types of harms that, that young people can face. And wonder if you could just talk a little bit about what are the sort of harms, because they're not always financial. 
Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So, I mean, I think I think it definitely goes back to that resources point. I think with young people, they don't actually. When I'm talking about, I'm talking actually really about children. I'm talking about those under the age of sixteen here. You know, for them, they're not really going to get themselves into severe financial difficulty because they don't have the access to the resources that, say, an adult might. Um, and so for the harms for them, we think it's much more about the impact on their development, on their trajectory, on, on their future potential, um, but also about the immediate impact on their, their lives, their connections with other people, their relationships with their families and their friends, that kind of social isolation that people can experience because when you withdraw into this activity because you've become so immersed in it, you, you know, you're, you're not engaging with other relationships in the way that you ought to be doing. Um, and it's also about that impact on their, their mental health and their well-being and their physical health. I mean, I know Anna can, can definitely speak to this because we, we had a quick conversation about this over lunchtime with some of the examples that you, you've seen of people you've treated. So I think just coming back to that question you had about what what to look out for if you're a layman and you, you wonder if somebody around you. So so the moodiness is a, is a big thing, you see. So like it can be elated mood one day and then it can be a real downer, deep depression, often a sense for people in the family that you can't quite understand what's going on. Like in the past, a lot of people would misdiagnose these gamblers with with bipolar disorders because the moods were so wide ranging. And then, of course, you have the social withdrawal, social withdrawal from friends, family, maybe not talking to, to family members, even if they previously were a person who would be relatively open and stuff. So usually family members might detect that something is wrong, but just like Liz was saying, this is not like alcohol or drug addiction where you can spot signs on the outside and stuff. So it's very confusing to put these things together and understand that you're dealing with something so hidden. And then adding to that is that the, the, the gambling addicts themselves often feel incredibly isolated because there is a sense of high stigma in society where people feel like, well, it's just a behavior. You can stop, right? If it's causing a problem, just stop. But it doesn't work like that. So, of course, a lot of people feel that it's very hard to come forward when they know even in themselves that they are suffering, which leads then to what you discussed, the levels of desperation that you see and the suicidality, etc. I actually think that there is potentially a, a triggering of suicidal feelings within these games. There is a progress from suicidal ideation to, um, to action which involves risk-taking, uh, impulsivity. We know these are triggers for suicidal action. And the games trigger that. They operate through that. They make people more risk-taking. That's how it works. It's a bit circular, I yes. suspect. Like, obviously, those are some of the things that make certain groups of people more keen to go into well, something like that. Like young men, for example. The risk-takers high impulsivity individuals, but also we're forgetting <laughs> here about describing people. describing all young men there. I would say that yeah, all young men, are, or most of them, are a high risk group. Yeah, but then you also have a very different group who may not be so impulsive, but who have suffered early trauma, for instance, who resort to gambling from early age in order to escape from difficult feelings. And, you know, that I think that it's that that we want to touch on here today with the the children being the group that is being exploited is that if you introduce something that can mess with your ability to regulate emotionally at an age of say eight or ten that's a big difference from introducing that at a later stage even if it may not be helpful at a later stage it's a lot more harmful at an earlier age that's my view anyway so, so david do you you know you, you've done a lot of work looking particularly at the games industry mm -hmm. do you think the, the, the games industry are taking this seriously. I think that's a really good question. Um, the, you know, yeah. with, with, with gambling, you know, Liz and I and others would say that the gambling industry has still got a long way to go, but actually it's not really in dispute that there is an association between gambling and harm. Uh, has the, the link between gaming and harm kind of been put beyond dispute? Do you think that's accepted by, by the games industry? Right, so I think, I think this is complicated for two different reasons. So I think there are twin discussions here that we need to have, but we need to keep them separate. There's a discussion about gaming and harm, and like, are you gaming too much? Are you gaming to the detriment of other activities in your life? Is your gaming causing you depression? So there's that, there's that gaming disorder argument, and then there's a separate argument about the collision of gambling and gaming, which is very much gambling-like things coming into the games. So um, 
I'd like to just talk about, like the other discussion is very interesting, but I just want to talk about the gambling stuff today. So, mm. so these comments that I make will be about specifically gambling mechanisms in games and that's loot boxes, but it's other stuff. Heather, mm -hmm. you, you've done other interesting things that are related to this. Um, like you've done skin gambling stuff. Yeah. And, and, and I think recognizing that loot boxes are a symptom of many ways that gambling and gaming are colliding is an important thing. When it comes to loot boxes themselves, I think games companies are taking it very seriously in one way and taking it very unseriously in another. So nobody really knows how much money loot boxes make for the gaming industry, uh, for the video games industry, uh, because the video games industry doesn't really share that kind of data with people like me. Um, but some estimates place it as high as $30 billion uh, in 2018. If you're a massive, massive, massive mega industry, you're going to take $30 billion worth of revenue really seriously. So I think they really, really care about loot boxes and they really, really care about what happens to them. We've seen them regulated in some territories like Belgium and the Netherlands. And I think the industry cares a lot about that happening. Do they care about harm? Do they care about the gambling related harms associated with loot boxes? I've had no evidence whatsoever that anyone does. I've sent open letters to the gaming industry. I've tried to contact people from the gaming industry. I've tried to talk to them. And I have had literally nobody reply. All I want to do is talk. All many researchers who are interested in this issue want to do is talk. And I've never heard a researcher have a success story about talking to the video games industry about this. If anyone is here from the video games industry and would like to have a sort of research-informed discussion where we can basically sit down and just talk about the evidence, uh, please approach one of us afterwards. We want to have the discussion. Lots of us here like video games. They think they're nice. Um, <laughs> uh, so, so that is my view on the matter. Thank you. Uh, Alex, do you want to come in? Yeah, so, so I very much echo that as well. But I think that's mostly from the, the, the very big corporations, right? You're talking about a few global companies. I know there's quite a few indie developers who are um, introducing self-exclusion, for instance, that if you don't actually want to buy loot boxes, you can actually shut that off from your account, uh, which is something that you didn't have a year ago or two years ago, which is because of the, the outrage within the community against it. And I think that's, that's a really interesting development. There's also a lot of video games right now that are completely changing their monetization. Even games that are in development that have actually said, actually, we're going to hold the game for another half a year because we were going to give it out for free, but we were going to do that via loot boxes because we need to get a revenue some way. Actually, because the community doesn't want it, we're going to try and figure out another way to do it, potentially with charge £10, you know, that sort of thing, which is really interesting. But I would echo again what David said, because it doesn't necessarily come from a harm minimization point of view. It comes from a consumer point of view. Because the gaming community has always historically been very self-regulating. The consumers, if they say yes, then we go with it. If they say no, they just shut us down. There was a very, very big esports game in, in uh, South Korea, and it had its first major tournament. There was many million at stake. Turns out there was some, uh, some shady business going on with some betting around it, and that game shut down within two months. Nobody played it anymore. So it's a, a very self-regulating uh, industry. Um, so they're not taking the harm minimization perspective. They're taking the we might lose our consumer perspective. Um, and then others are taking the legalistic perspective, which is actually if we can't trade it, if we can't get money's worth, uh, it's not gambling. Enough said. Um, so it's. Uh, so before I open it up to, to questions, um, panelists, you've got an opportunity here. You've got a range of people in different roles um, from a, across different media companies, different different um, media organisations who are working with with young people and children, kind of. Start how, finish how, how we started, kind of one minute each. What would be your, your ask of the people in, in the room today? So perhaps, Liz, if, if you'd like to go first. Okay. I've got a very simple ask, actually. Just all of you imagine what it's like to be addicted to gambling. Drug addicts talk about how the shape of a spoon can just trigger a craving. And... When you go out of here, think about what that must be like in terms of the amount you see, the number of triggers that there are um, from... Well, I've, I don't need to say any more to you. I'm just ask you to do that because what's really important is that we empathise with these children because they're children um, and young people and that we understand that because that's why we must take action. Okay, Heather. 
for me, the the main takeaway is that I'd really like people to walk out of this and realise that gambling is not an ordinary commodity. It's a commodity that involves risk, and that that the way that our society, a bit like this, is saying is is developing, is that these gambling-like activities, these gambling cues, are inserting their way into everyday life in a way that is absolutely unprecedented, and that's partly related to the way that technology is developing. Um, but it is also the actions of the corporations and um, in terms of what they're trying to do in terms of you know, diversifying their products, getting their profit streams in, et cetera, et cetera. So I think what we need to think about is a whole system approach because it's not just good enough to go, well, the gambling industry should be doing this and the gaming industry should be doing this. We've also got all of the um, online uh, social media platform providers that are you know, allowing all sorts of adverts and uh, marketing and promotion. You know, there are so many different players. Whilst people might not be providers of a product, they are facilitators of that action. And when that happens, and we know that there is a risk that is related to some of these things, then I think we should all be standing up together saying there is a duty of care from all of us to actually join together to help to reduce these harms. Thank you. Alexander? Um, so I think I'm going to come at this from a slightly different perspective. I think um, one of the biggest issues we see with loot boxes and, and uh, the emergence between gaming and gambling and, and actually with gaming as well, if we want to talk about the other addiction, which is gaming addiction, which is a big elephant in the room, is awareness. There is just not enough awareness. And I think that has to do more than anything with the, the lack of uh, uh, understanding from, no offense to everybody here, the older generation when it comes to technology. Um, your children are playing games, they're, they're highly uh, evolved when it comes to technology and you might not have that understanding. So, so what I would ask you to do is that actually if you have kids, if you have grandchildren, if you have nephews and nieces, sit down and play with them and see why they enjoy these games, see why they enjoy opening these loot boxes and actually it's going to give you an understanding of it. But also, as David mentioned before, the vast majority of you likely have some form of game on your phone. Why do you enjoy playing that? You know, what, what is the thing that you're looking at and, and does it have loot boxes? Because the chances is it actually has, it's just not a box. You know, so just think about it in your everyday life and try to, try to sort of see um, how prevalent it actually is. Yeah, I'd echo most of what you all have said, actually. But just coming at it from a slightly more clinical standpoint, of course, when you treat people with these addictions, you've got to look at what they can control, okay, which is never going to be the, the incoming information, the adverts, etc. You have to look at only the stuff that they have power over. So I've, I wanted to say to you guys here in this room that if you have children at home who are interacting with these games, don't be too blinded by research, because I often see this, people coming in saying, oh, well, I've read online here now that it isn't harmful after all. I'm really relieved. I can let my kids sit here for 10, 12 hours, no problem. Pay attention to them. Check, is this a healthy interaction that they're having here with this mm. game? Because the reality is most people know in their gut when something is off. Yeah? But when we start overriding that, it becomes a slippery slope oftentimes. And we choose kind of to believe what might be convenient to us as parents. But it's very, very important that we pay attention to these trends early on for, for our children's lives. Yeah. Thank you. Um, I would uh, so I would echo statements made by everyone around here, particularly about awareness. So loot boxes aren't something that two amateur coders in their bedroom put into a game. They are the product of a massively industrialized um, complex whose revenues are enormous. They're very very common. They're everywhere. They're very very profitable. Um, they're used regularly by children. I think the UK Gambling Commission um, um, commissioned a report by Ipsos which said some huge proportion of children had opened a loot box. They're really, really common, yet the awareness of them isn't there. I think um, you're here in this session, which means that you've already self-selected as a group into knowing about this stuff. So probably the likelihood that you know about loot boxes is higher than the general population. But I reckon if you went out around your offices or on the street and you asked 10 people, do you know what a loot box is? Can you describe it to me? Most of them can't, yet they're in like sort of half of games. So if you're in a position where you could raise an awareness of them, maybe you could raise awareness by creating something that will let people understand them better, or maybe you can raise awareness of them within your own company if you're a company who produces this kind of content. And you might be surprised that your company is producing this kind of content, but they're everywhere, so it might be. Um, please, please do that. The more aware people are, the better. 
And if you want to talk to any of us about this, please come talk to us, particularly from the, if you're from the games industry. Uh, I think there's been a, a perspective from the games industry that if they repeatedly and loudly shout that they're not gambling, everyone will believe that they're not gambling and they'll buzz off and leave the games industry alone to make its billions and billions of pounds a year. That, that's not happening. You've got to, as an industry, change what you're doing. You've got to engage with this um, literature and you've got to engage with the people who are doing it. Um, uh, and so I guess raise awareness is, is my take home. Brilliant. Thank you, panel. So it's now time for all of you to do some work. And don't be shy. We've got, you, you've got a fantastic opportunity here to draw upon our expert panel. So <laughs> uh, some are very keen. So Hello. Hello. I work in the games industry and I'm very sorry. Um, I'm, I'm very interested in this. So... In, in no way to minimise or, or make any kind of excuses. But the games industry it has many chips on its shoulder um, about legitimacy, about being seen as an art form, about not being addictive. We recognise that um, what is fun is often an unfinished task. So it's something that you, you need to go back to. And we do take advantage of that. Um, at this conference, for many years, we've done lots of talking with other people other people in the wider games industry rather than just content makers making content for children specifically about games that are not designed for children but are attracted attractive to children so the likes of Fortnite, which is not specifically designed for this market but is ultimately incredibly attractive to them um, so I think we are we are aware of it. I wasn't aware of these stats. Those stats have scared the bejesus out of me. And the impact on your life specifically kind of makes me feel a bit sick because I have a 12-year-old son who is currently struggling. Who is at risk. Yeah. Um, and it's kind of like, I think that, I don't know who you've reached out to in the games industry. I can imagine that some people would have responded very negatively and frostily. But with that kind of, um, like you were saying about slicing the conversation up into yeah. one very specific chunk and saying, how do we have a conversation? Because my question back to you is, what can I do? Because if we, if we put Peggy ratings on things, that doesn't tend to have much of an impact. Um, if we specifically design things to not be for children, like we specifically like send mega warnings to parents like this is not for children don't yeah. come near the children are like who yeah. <laughs> who that looks interesting yeah. um so like what would you as a, a panel of experts recommend as as good ways forward okay so um yeah. david then then liz you go first david. Um, so, um, first of all, thank you. This is wonderful. This is this is really a big moment for me. So, <laughs> so you know, I, I, I feel uh, yes, I feel so. Thank you. This is just lovely. Um, uh, so, I feel like Scylla Black. <laughs> <laughs> so, so this is the conversation I've been wanting to have for years. Um, there are so many things that could be done and any of them would be better than nothing. <laughs> like, so at the moment, the state of the art is nothing. There's nothing because nobody's willing to admit that there could be any potential for harm in their wildest dreams. These are just kinder eggs, you know? Um, it's just fun. Um, and you're right. We slice this off. We say, okay, this is not, we're not talking about gaming disorder at the moment. We are talking specifically about uh, gambling-like mechanisms. Um, and there's so many things you can do. They range from just the mildest, you know. So if you want to put, if you want to say to Peggy, look, we don't even need a rating. We just need a content descriptor. You know, we've already got a microtransactions content descriptor. Can you say that these are child-based microtransactions? That would be so helpful because I guarantee you scroll through the Google Play Store and click on something like Merge Dragons. You know, this is, this is a very high-grossing game, one of the top-grossing games on the Google Play Store. Play it. See how long it takes you before you work out it's got loot boxes in it. Whereas if you had that stuff up front, you as a parent could be like, oh, this has got loot boxes in it. I am going to choose that my seven-year-old child cannot play it. That will be such a wonderful start. Um, even smaller than that, if you as a company want to put like a disclaimer on the front of your game, which says, hey, you're about to play this, just so you know, it's got these child-based microtransactions in it. Again, wonderful, lovely. And the, um, so that's like at the really vanilla um, sort of soft core end of, end of the spectrum. The options for what's going to happen 
rage right up to an enormous hammer, which is saying, if you've got loot boxes, you've got illegal gambling in your game and you're about to get shut down or, or regulated by, by Tim. Um, I'm not sure that's the best way out. I wonder if it's the way we're heading because up till now I haven't had this conversation, but it's very exciting because I am having this conversation. And there's a bunch of things you can do, you know. There's a really nice paper out in Addiction by um, the this research team of two guys called Drummer and, and Sauer who, who wrote a really nice paper on loot boxes a while back where they say, hey, has anybody thought about limit setting? Like maybe we could have this policy where like if it's loot boxes, you know, there's limit setting automatically on it so that then you can't be spending loads and loads and loads of money on loot boxes. And then any arguments that people make that loot boxes might be different Potentially exploiting people who have issues with gambling just drift away. But they have to be mandatory limit setting. It cannot, because what we know from the gambling world is that if you ask people to set their own limits, nobody does it. Or if they do do it, they set them so high they never reach them. So it has to be a mandatory set uh, limit that is imposed as an industry um, down across as a coherent whole. Right. I would say tell your colleagues how angry the families are. Think Grenfell and cladding, and they will only get more. Special Effect is a charity that's involved in um, trying to enable people with with different abilities to play games. Mm. Like we we are not heartless monsters. <laughs> <laughs> Although I feel like one at the moment. Um, no, I, I'm not sure <laughs> you feel like that. But the reality is if something that you do kills somebody yeah. and you didn't know, You'd well, that's understandable, like potentially yeah. forgivable. Yeah. If you go on doing it when you know, then that's potentially psychopathic. Yeah. I wonder if you are aware of or do you know of the impacts of interventions that have happened before? So I know like on... Um, the National Lottery website, their scratch cards, um, they have a percentage, so it's advertised as part of the game, they have a percentage chance of winning, so most of them it's like 3%, which is comical. Um, like, does anybody know if those kinds of interventions sorry. have... Sorry, I'm monopolising that. No, no, no. <laughs> no, have those interventions had any effect? So, I mean, is it is, is a requirement that you you have the kind of the odds displayed. I, I don't know, I think, is it China who's now required mm -hmm. that the odds mm -hmm. for loot boxes have to be displayed within the game? So, I mean, that is an option. Um, one thing we do know, though, I did a piece of work um, just presenting this kind of information to people and getting them to try and explain to me what it meant. Um, people are really bad at interpreting statistical information and understanding what it means. Um, and actually, my favourite quote out of that research was someone said, because we were presenting them with different options, what if we present it this way or this way? And they said, just take it off and just say, if you play this game, you will lose your money. It was like it was as simple as that. It's like, stop faffing around with all these kind of quite nuanced things that people don't get and go go straight for the simple descriptor of what is going to, you know, what... What could happen? But, but the whole but concept undermines the, the fact that an addiction is not a chosen behaviour yes, by the time it's yeah. an addiction. So, you know, you, I'll give you an example. I have, I've treated a lot of homeless uh, addicted gamblers over the years. Now, of course, they go in with their scrap pennies. They look at the machines and they might say you're going to walk out with, I don't know, much less than you put in. It's not going to touch them at that point. They are addicted to the process of gambling. They, it's not as if they are stupid or can't understand statistics. It's, it's a whole different level of, of a problem you got at that point. So, so my view would be that whilst it might be somewhat helpful to deter people from starting, and certainly parents might benefit from that kind of message, like understanding, wow, I don't think I want to put my kid on this. By the time you have a problem, I don't believe myself that those things are going to make a massive difference. Can I bring in a, another questioner? Yeah. Hi, yeah. Um, Colin Ward, um, um, the Children's Media Foundation, which is audience advocacy organisation. Um, we've just done a response on the government white paper on uh, the, the question of um, protecting children, or protecting all of us online, making online a, a safe space. Um, and one of the points we were, were making in that and it's quite interesting, actually, I hadn't thought about this when I came in for the session, but we, we were making the point that um, the way they seem to be going is the idea that you make child-safe spaces online, walled gardens. 
And we were trying to say, look, that, that seems really unfair. You know, children should have the freedom to do what they, you know, what they to explore the whole online place. And I actually suggested we used as an analogy what I remember from the past about gambling. That, that because gambling is potentially problematic and addictive, um, and because you want to protect children from that, what we had were betting shops that were 18 plus areas. We had, you know, ga um, uh, the uh, gambling machines, I can't remember what they're called, what they're called? Bonkies. Yeah, yeah, th that were put in, in 18 plus areas. So we, we put that stuff out of reach of children so, so that they weren't, you know, uh, able to get that. So that suggests, looking at this, that what you're looking at is saying, if, if, if loot boxes are associated with this and potentially addictive behaviour, you don't have them in children's games. They're just not there. And you have to go to an 18-plus adult space to get those games. Um, that, that seems a logical conclusion. And I, th I thought the points made about the differences between Kinder Eggs and the, the loot boxes... I think that that really highlights maybe, I guess if you could reach a point where loot boxes were, ver were more like Kinder Eggs, if they could do that, then maybe you could have them, you know, possibly, yeah. Okay. Was there a further question over? Take a, another one, because I appreciate we're starting to run out of time. Hello, yes. Um, I don't have a question, I just have an apology. Um, that is that we, we, we have a game out there that um, you, can, you can play the levels, and once you've played the levels, um, a chest appears and bits come out of it. Um, and it was brought to our attention, and I, I think we worked with a slightly older development agency on this, and it's something that's been brought to our attention and is on my radar, and I came to this session with the intention to have the ammunition to take back to the team. Um, and so I will be doing that, and we will be removing that visual reference um, from our game. Sorry. Thank you. Thank you. And take one more here, and then I'll ask the, the panel to kind of respond to all, all of those um, before we, we, we close with a, with a further video. Uh, Tom Jeans from BBC Children's. Um, my question, I think, is for David. Um, I think you make a really coherent distinction between uh, the, kind of the, the social discussion versus the gambling discussion. My, my question is, to the extent that we could remove a kind of monetary transaction for loot boxes. It's kind of, you get your whatever it is, skin, dagger, whatever it might be. If that became a merit-based transaction, i.e. points or whatever, you know, gameplay, duration, whatever it is, and then you get your reward, does that still, in your view, have a correlation or potential correlation to future gambling addiction as well? I'm just kind of wondering how far that that spectrum kind of goes. Right, so I think that's a really interesting question. The research literature at the moment is about money. So it's about spending money and the links between spending money on loot boxes and um, spending money on gambling and developing problems with gambling. My, so we have nothing to suggest. One, we know there's a link there. We have no idea about the other thing that you've just asked. My guess would be that Loot has been part of video games since video games began. We've always been able to get chests in dungeons. We've always been able to get new weapons and items and things like that. I don't think that is the problem. I think it's the monetization. And I think it's one of many ways that games... So it used to be, like, we go down to the shops, you buy a game, it's 50 quid, end of the day, everyone pays the same amount for the games. We're all spending 50 quid and we're all getting the same game. That changed some time ago. Maybe it changed 10 years ago, maybe it changed five years ago. I don't know quite when it happened, but we moved to an industry where the distribution of spending is different, where you have some people who spend very little, and then you have some people who refer to internally, unfortunately, as whales, um, using like slang from casinos, who spend just huge, huge, huge amounts of money. And I think it's the money that's the problem. I think you follow the money. I think there is research I can't quote though but I know in the on the gambling side of things where they've tried sort of groups who are gambling but they're not using money versus groups who are gambling with money and it's quite clear that it's the risk-taking element is in the actual money spent so not not that it's the amount but what that money means to the person if you see what I mean so like it's still the transaction still has an important role um, I'm not sure about that <laughs> um, uh, I think there is the dopamine. And the risk-taking doesn't necessarily come from risking money. 
you know, if you're talking about social status, which is what's particularly important to children, then probably not. I think you're right. We don't quite know what the correlation is, but we do know what makes games more addictive. And one of them is speed of play. And we do know that what happens is it, it, it bypasses the frontal lobe and goes straight into the amygdala, and it's a reward into the, that, that very primitive part of the brain. That's got nothing to do with money. I'm going to give Alexander the final comment because there is a light blinking angrily at me at the moment. <laughs> so, so it's something I wanted to say. I, I think we're talking about loot boxes and often we do talk about loot boxes as they're one homogenous thing. They're not. They take hundreds of different shapes. They look differently. They act differently. They have different uh, speed of play. They have different um, ways they engage with you. And I think... The ones that are the most similar to gambling, I think, are, are the ones that I think we should start with. If you can actually buy them with money, you know, as, as a, gambling, a gaming company, if you can buy them with money, uh, if you can use your credit card to buy them, for instance, that's a very clear thing where you could just stop it. If you can buy them with money, you buy an, uh, a chance-based element with money, and if you can then trade that chance-based element that you got through money, it's gambling. I mean, that is, is there's no two ways about it. Now, if you receive randomized loot within the game that has no value outside of the game once every end of the dungeon that you've been playing um, that you can't buy with money, you can't buy it with anything else, you can't trade it, you can't do anything like that. I don't, we have no evidence to say that there's any harm behind that, right? But what we do know is that those things that, you know, if my boss always says, if it looks like a duck, it quacks like a duck, and it walks like a duck, it's a duck, right? And in a lot of these instances, it's a duck. Like, we know that basically it is the same thing. But I don't think it's okay to say that all loot boxes cause harm, all gaming cause harm. No, it's, it's not. It's not. Not at all. And I don't want us to walk down that path. We do know that there's some correlation. We need to be cautious about that. We need to be thinking about it, but we can't say that uh, it's one and the same. We just but can't. in the meantime, there's one person dying every day. So we need but not from loot boxes. You have well, no evidence of that. Well, I don't agree. I think there's a correlation okay. with gambling addiction. Uh, correlation, not causation. I, I need to bring this to close so I can allow time actually for a, a very important video to show you at the, the end. The folks here need to clear this room fairly quickly when we're done. So if you have further questions for our fantastic panel, please do come and speak to, to any of us in, in the cafe or the bar area. Um, I want to close now on a video that Gambling With Lives have, have produced, which has, has been kind of debuted, if that's the right word, to today. It is an incredibly powerful film with very strong messages in it, but I think they're messages that are important for us to, to hear. But I do want to say they, you know, that there are understandably strong messages in there, but I think it's an, an appropriate message to, to end on if we can. This phrase, when the fun stops, stop. When the fun stops, it's too late to stop. Gambling was the root cause and the immediate trigger of his death. It changed him. It changed his psychology. Josh used to gamble online with his phone at night, and he would describe lying on the bed in sweat, shaking, trying not to go back onto the site to gamble. My famous last words saying to him, look, it's only money, nobody's died. I don't think we really got to grips with, with just actually how deep and complex an addiction gambling can be. People die because of drugs overdoses. People die because of alcohol intake. But to take your own life, that is a different place. In, in, in psychologically, it's a different place. My son went into, into the woods where he took his life. Every time you play on these electronic games, you will reinforce the addiction. You have been deliberately addicted so that some people can make money out of you. The industry, as far as we can see as families, are grooming the next generation with a whole set of online games. And these are aimed at seven, eight, nine-year-olds. That's the next generation who are going to be their income generators. And a proportion of these children will die. It needs to be out there, awareness needs to be out there to tell people about gambling, how bad it is, how much it wrecks your life. Get help, get treatment and send the bill to the gambling industry. 
suicide is a consequence of this, this kind of addiction. I didn't know that it was gambling and that there was a danger that somebody would die. Our son. We can't let this happen to anybody else. 